What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. AMC Entertainment has had a wild year. 2021 saw the movie theater chain almost file for bankruptcy and its resurgence, thanks in part to a group of retail investors who call themselves apes. At the helm of it all was CEO Adam Aaron. CNBC spoke with Aaron for a documentary about the ape movement. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is the full conversation I had with Adam Aaron in September 2021. So, Adam, you're in Kansas City right now? Uh, I am. We're, I'm filming this from an AMC theater in Olathe, Kansas. How long was that theater empty? And when did that theater reopen? You're bringing back bad memories. I remember on February 23 of 2020, uh, hearing word in my office that the City Fathers in Milan wanted us to shut a half a dozen theaters for 10 days. That was the first time we heard any news that the coronavirus uh, had sort of escaped the borders of China. It had been contained in China in January and early February. And I remember thinking at that time, well, it's only six theaters in Milan and we've got a thousand theaters globally in 15 countries. It'd be very bad if it were to spread or to come to the United States where we're the largest movie theater chain in the US with 600 theaters here, but uh, it's only half a dozen theaters in Milan. Three weeks later, three weeks, we had to shut all 1,000 of our theaters in all of the United States, all of Europe, and all of the Middle East. Uh, and our theaters stayed shut from the middle of March of 2020. Some started to reopen in Europe in June, but not many. Uh, here in the United States, we started reopening in about August of 2020. But there were very few movies to show because studios were delaying the releases of films. Uh, and so we were showing old movies from 20 and 30 years ago, and nobody came to our theaters. Uh, so whether the theaters were shut, like, like, like the doors locked, which they were for about six months, or effectively shut, which has been more like a year and a half, because we've really only started to see the return of big movies in the smallest of numbers starting in April and May of 2021. And really it won't be until October of 2021 that we'll see one blockbuster movie after another being released. That's gonna start with, I think, No Time to Die and James Bond, September 30 in Europe, October 8 here in the United States. When all the screens went dark, Adam, did you ever think that you know, 17, 18 months from, from that point, You'd be sitting here, um, you will have announced a $25 million ad campaign, you will have raised billions of dollars in capital, and your stock would be at 40 something dollars a share. So, if you had asked me in February or March of 2020, 
I couldn't have imagined any of this, any of this. I remember when we closed our theaters in mid-March, various experts were saying we would be shut for four to six weeks. And I remember thinking, I'm a man who likes to uh, under-promise and over-deliver. So I said, well, look, maybe they're wrong. So let's put out a press release saying we'll open up in six to 12 weeks. That'll give us a cushion. That's double what they're all saying. Yeah, 12 weeks, huh? Uh, our theaters were closed for six months in the United States. Uh, we were starved of new movie releases for well over a year. You could, some could argue, uh, we just, we just uh, came off a great Labor Day weekend with Shang-Chi, which smashed Labor Day records. But really, big movies don't start until the fall. Uh, we had no idea that we were almost going to run out of cash five different times in 2020. A big multinational company, $5 billion plus in revenue, very stable industry, mature industry. Uh, wasn't growing all that fast, but certainly wasn't shrinking. All of a sudden, we had no revenue at all, just overnight, gone. And that we would work our way through that without having to file for bankruptcy. Uh, and then to lead into the uh, embrace of AMC by retail individual investors uh, who have so enthusiastically come to the rescue of AMC in 2021. The whole thing uh, is an amazing story. How did you become a meme stock? And did you even know what a meme was when you became a meme stock? <laughs> there are a lot of different reasons. Uh, we certainly never expected it, right? We've been complaining for all the way back to the summer of 2017 that there was a lot of short activity in our stock, uh, all because people were predicting the demise of movie theaters. And, and we've been making the case since 2017 that people are way too quick in conventional wisdom to write off movie theaters. Movie theaters are a very resilient category. We've been around for over a century of uh, a, a popular part of the cultural fabric the world over. Movie theaters have survived everything that's been thrown at us. It sounds like a long time ago, but radio was supposed to put movie theaters out of business and TV was gonna put us out of business and VCRs were gonna put us out of business and DVDs were gonna put us out of business and now streaming's supposed to be putting us out of business. And guess what? People love going to movie theaters. I think the, the, the rally uh, that surrounded AMC that started in January of 2021. I think part of that started because people noticed that there was a heavy concentration of short selling in AMC stock. But I also think that major ingredients were average everyday American investors and lots of uh, average everyday retail investors overseas loved going to theaters. And they didn't want to see a proud 101 year old American company like AMC disappear. So many people have great memories of having watched a big movie at some point in their lives with someone they cared for, whether it was a, uh, a parent or a, a sibling or someone they were dating or, or their kids, and they didn't want to see AMC disappear. Uh, and they've been reading in the press that people were predicting that the COVID pandemic was going to drive us into bankruptcy, and they just didn't want that to happen. And so they surrounded our company. Uh, and as you, as 2021 has played out, uh, we're a popular company on the tips of everyone's tongues. 
Well, let's go back to the end of 2020. Um, AMC was sort of teetering on bankruptcy. Uh, and then you had a $917 million capital raise. You came on to CNBC, did an interview. Two days later, hashtag save AMC started to trend. Did you know that was happening? Did you realize what was going on at that point? We did. Um, uh, I instantly saw this save AMC hashtag on Twitter. It was trending, as you know. I think it might have been even the, the top trending hashtag on Twitter that day. So, but let's start back in December of 2020. You know, the, look, the pandemic put AMC on our knees. We almost ran out of cash five times. We raised money in April, we raised money in July, we raised money in October and November, but uh, the movie titles kept on getting delayed uh, because studios understandably didn't want to release their big blockbuster movies what they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on in the middle of the pandemic when they were afraid no one would show up at theaters. And people had been predicting that the summer movies would bail us out and the Thanksgiving movies would bail us out and the Christmas movies would bail us out. Well, there were no summer movies, there were, except for Tenet. Thank you, Christopher Nolan. Uh, there were no Thanksgiving movies, there were no Christmas movies, except for Wonder Woman 84. And even that was taken to the home uh, simultaneously with theatrical release. And we knew that this pandemic, by December 2020, we knew that this pandemic was not going away in a month or two, even though everybody had been saying, oh, it's all gonna go away in a month or two, but they said that over and over and over and over again in 2020. So we announced in December of 2020, mid-December 2020, that we needed to raise at least $750 million to make it at least through June of 2021 for AMC to survive. And we were very much running down two parallel tracks at the same time. We wanted to do everything in our power to prevent bankruptcy. Uh, and that meant raising money. And that was uh, clearly my singular goal. But if we had to go into bankruptcy, we were preparing to do it professionally and smartly. So we had the, the bankruptcy just in case track going. But our energy and love was to save AMC to prevent it from happening. Well, on um, Monday, January 25, we put out a press release that said we raised over $900 million and that bankruptcy was off the table. And in the next 48 hours, specifically beginning in after hours trading Tuesday night the next day, the AMC share price started to explode. And that was the beginning of retail investors pouring into our, into our stock. They've taken control of AMC. AMC was institutionally owned for a decade, in the whole decade that we were public. Uh, institutional investors owned over 80% of the company. By April of 2021, individual retail investors owned over 80% of the company. A, a total reversal. Uh, and as we uh, prepared for our annual shareholder meeting in July, uh, we, we did a deep dive into our shareholder base. On June 2 of 2021, we had 4.1 million individual shareholders who owned an average of between 100 and 120 shares each, but there were 4 million of them. And they now control AMC and I work for them. Professional managers have always worked for the shareholders of their company. The shareholder, it's, you know, I see all this stuff on Twitter that I'm the, the king and all. No, it's the shareholder who's king. Management can lead, but management needs to listen to its shareholders because they are the owners of the company. 
and it is retail investors who have become the owners of AMC. So it's their company. If some of you are watching, it's your company, and we're proud to be along with you for the ride. Did the retail investors save AMC? Initially, the retail investors did not save AMC because we had saved AMC first by raising a lot of money. We raised uh, many billions of dollars, uh, three, or, three or four by January 25 of 2021. And that's what initially saved AMC. But then the retail investors arrived in huge numbers. And yes, they saved AMC. And that's when they saved AMC because uh, after we'd raised all the money that got us through the initial bankruptcy threat, we had, some, we had some real money in the bank. But that was January of 2021. I'm filming this in September of 2021, and we're still dealing with this pandemic. And because of the retail investors, we raised another uh, $1,250,000,000 in May and June of 2021. And that last billion dollars is what really will, I think, guarantee that we survive through this pandemic with the reality, of course, that there are no guarantees in life and no one really has a crystal ball. So I assume that the country and the world, because of vaccination, will make great progress as we look at 2022 and 2023 and 2024. But of course, nothing is certain. But that last billion and a quarter that we raised, that more than doubled the cash that we had available to us. That allowed us to finish the second quarter of 2021 with $2 billion of cash in the bank or undrawn revolving credit line. It turns out that $2 billion figure is more money than AMC has had at quarter end in the entire 101-year history of our company. And uh, when we raised that money, I said that that was going to allow AMC to go out and play on offense again that the COVID virus may have put us on defense and put us on our heels. But as they say in European football, they call it, we call it soccer over here. It's time to play on the front feet again, to go on attack, uh, to play on offense, as we would say in the States. And sure enough, we announced that we were adding some theaters. We were able to absorb several of the theaters from the Arclight Pacific chain, which was the, one of the most successful collection of theaters in Southern California, for example. Just after Labor Day weekend in 2021, we announced one of the most dramatic things that AMC has ever done, a new $25 million national advertising campaign, network television, with seven different commercials starring Nicole Kidman, talking about how magical it is to see movies in movie theaters. And we think these commercials are going to help give our business a springboard back as more and more people uh, feel confident to return to theaters and to seek out what I would call normal living again, where we get to go out and about and see people and gather with people and do things that we love, like going to sporting events and going to concerts and going to theaters to watch a movie. What, what is success in your view? Um, is it going to be pre-pandemic business levels, sustained pre-pandemic business levels, or is it going to be something greater? Because critics would say that going into the pandemic, the business was already declining and it was in a secular decline. And so even going back to pre-pandemic, you're still on a precipice going downward. What would you say to that? Well, first, those people who said that 
moviegoing was in a secular decline were wrong. It is true that attendance at movie theaters fell uh, very slightly, down like 1% a year for 20 years. But uh, we were increasing prices during that time. We were improving our food and beverage in theaters at that time. Our food and beverage revenues were growing at the time. Our theater admissions revenues were growing at that time. And in fact, in 2015, in 2016, in 2018, AMC had record profitability. That's not a business in decline. That's not an industry in decline. Unit volumes may have decreased, but revenues increased. Uh, number one. Number two, if you look at the industry box office, which is a proxy for the size and health of our industry. 2019, going backwards, all pre-pandemic. Five consecutive years, the industry box office was higher than $11 billion domestically. Domestically is the US and Canada. Uh, 11 years in a row, it was $10 billion or higher through 2019 pre-pandemic. And so that's not an industry in decline, but a lot of that conventional narrative came from people who fell into the old trap, especially younger journalists who grew up in the age of the internet, grew up in the age of streaming, and they assumed that streaming would put us down. Just like people assumed that DVDs would put us down and VCRs would put us down and TV would put us down and radio would put us down. But guess what? In 2019, Disney released a film called Avengers Endgame. It grossed $2 billion at the box office in 2019. It was the biggest single movie gross in the history of film. Netflix was in business in 2019, I checked. And the point of that is to say, there's no reason why theaters can't coexist with streaming. People all have kitchens in their houses, but they go out to eat in restaurants. The appetite for content is so great amongst consumers that people can make content for the home, like they've done on television for 70, 80 years. They can make content for streaming. They can make content for theatrical release. And the world is big enough, consumer appetites are large enough that we can all live harmoniously. 2018, the industry box office, that's the domestic industry box office, US, Canada, hit 11.9 billion. That was the biggest of all time. Netflix was a business in 2018, I checked. We can exist harmoniously. There's room enough for all of us. Now, what defines success? We're not yet back up to 2018 or 2019 box office levels because of the pandemic. The box office in 2020 was only $2 billion, the fraction, because the world was on lockdown in 2020. And in 2021, the box office, uh, we don't know the final tally for the end of the year, but maybe it'll be around $5 billion, kind of half of what was normal uh, for the decade prior. We're still feeling the effects of the pandemic. So I think the first sign of success will be a recovery of the movie theater industry a recovery for AMC, where we get back to 2019 revenues and we get back to 2019 profitability. So that's my first definition of success. My second definition of success, though, is we've got to take this company, AMC Entertainment, much further than just being the operator of a thousand movie theaters in the US, Europe, and the Middle East. We have a massive valuation of our company right now in market cap. And we need to grow into that valuation. And I think a way to do that is to expand the appetite of AMC 
and re reach beyond just being a pure movie theater play and do other things as well in the future as we did movie theaters in the past. And we have a lot of ideas on that score. And I think as the next six, 18, 30 months play out, you'll see AMC branching out and doing more interesting things. And that will be the definition of success. You use the term grow into your valuation. Does that mean that you think the stock is overvalued right now? That's what it sounded like to me. I would never use those words and I don't really comment on our share price per se. My focus was on running the company, then it was on saving the company, now it's on restoring the company and it will quickly become into growing the company. But we put out a major disclosure in June of 2021 that said that we were aware that our company's stock was trading was quite volatile and that it had moved, the trading in our shares had moved away from fundamental analysis. I guess I think that in a marketplace where on average over 100 million shares of our stock are trading in a day, every day, uh, that the right value for our stock is what a willing buyer and a willing seller agree that it is worth. And that's what it trades at. That's what a marketplace is all about. You know, the market sets the value. But given that we may be trading away from fundamentals at the moment, I do think it's wise for us to think quite boldly about what kind of company we turn AMC into so that forever and a day, uh, we will be worth what people pay for our stock on the New York Stock Exchange. I want to get to that notion of, of all the trading volume that happens on a daily basis. The, the motto of the apes is buy and hodl, meaning they're going to hold this thing until the mother of all short squeezes, which implies long-term holding. And yet you, you did mention the turnover is very high. So what, what do you think is really going on here with the stock? Do you think that this army of the apes are really long-term shareholders or are they trading in and out? Because what can account for such high volume on a daily basis? When we realized in April of 2021 that retail investors essentially had bought the company one share at a time, right? More than 80% of our stocks held by retail investors. If you take out the index funds who have to buy our stock because they buy everything on the exchange, I think retail investors are like 90% of the ownership base of AMC. I think they're there for a lot of reasons, but I think one of them is because they love the company and they love the industry. They love movies. We thought it was important to communicate with them. So on April, in April of 2021, I went back on Twitter. I say back on Twitter because AMC is the fifth company I've run in my lifetime since 1993. One of them was a two-year stint being the CEO of the NBA team in my hometown, Philadelphia. I'm still one of the investors in the Philadelphia 76ers, one of the owners, and I was its CEO. And back when I, I ran the Sixers for two seasons, I used to tweet 10 times a day to the fan base because they were you know, so passionate. And so I decided to go back on Twitter. My tweeting has exploded since April. Typical tweets that I send out now get read a half a million to a million times a day. And I get literally over a thousand inbound messages a day on Twitter. And I read them and I buy them. I'm following over 2000 people on Twitter. Most of them are our retail investors, I would imagine. They, they write profusely on Twitter. And I read it every single day I read it because I want to understand what they're saying and I want to understand what they're thinking because they own our company. And over and over and over again, I read that people want to be long-term investors in AMC and uh, that they 
believe in the company. They, happily for me, they believe in the leadership of the company. Uh, they believe in our future, uh, as do I, I might add. Are some of them buying and selling? They must, right? Of course. I mean, that, but I, if you really ask me what's going on, I think it's something different. I think there's a tremendous amount of algorithmic machine trading in our stock every day. Our stock is still quite volatile. The difference between the high and the low on any given trading day is anywhere from three to 10%. Uh, you know, sometimes a little less, sometimes it's more. But with that amount of volatility within a day, within a calendar day, I assume there's a lot of arbitrage opportunity going on. And that with all the algorithmic machine trading that exists, where machines are trading for pennies of profit in day trading activity, I think there's a lot of that going on that's divorced from those of our shareholders who believe in our future and our, our long-term holders. Um, you mentioned that you engage with the people on Twitter, you read all their tweets, um, and a couple of things that you announced in your latest earnings report are a direct reflection of what you've read in terms of suggestions um, from the shareholders, like accepting Bitcoin, uh, eSports, a potential partnership with GameStop. Um, I'm wondering if, if you can sort of outline what you think that'll do in terms of moving the needle on revenue, or is this sort of appeasing the retail investor? First, with respect to your question, I never said I read all their comments because no human can read all their comments because it's thousands and thousands and thousands. But I, I bet I read a thousand a day, so I don't know how to read them all. And since I'm following 2,000 of them, a lot of them can direct message me and I get a lot of those every day. We've been deluged with suggestions from our company's new owners. Not all of them are uh, the most brilliant ideas I've ever heard, but so many of them are. So many of the things that have come in our way are really good things for us to do. Some of the ideas, we honestly, we'd thought of before. There were, you know, there were people who were suggesting, why don't you show professional sports? Well, since I used to be a CEO of a professional sports team, yeah, I, I thought of that before, and we've been talking to various sports leagues for years now about trying to get the rights. But there are other ideas that came our way that I think are just brilliant, brilliant. Our shareholder base, which is younger, is quite cryptocurrency savvy, they want us to take cryptocurrency. So we're going to take cryptocurrency. Uh, there are other ideas that they have that we will explore. There are some ideas that have surfaced, which I think could create real value for AMC. One of the ones that I particularly love, uh, which I haven't commented on before publicly, is to make commemorative movie tickets as an NFT. And I, you know, I, that's a really smart idea. That's a really smart idea because we, we probably pay 50 to 100 big movies a year. Could we make 50 to 100 NFT commemorative tickets that mean something to people and mean something to us that could drive our business going forward? I think the answer is yes. Uh, I do believe we can move the needle just within the world of AMC, but I also think it's going to be important for us to expand and go beyond what AMC has traditionally been. And so I think uh, as the next year or two unfold, you'll see us branching out into different businesses than just playing movies in movie theaters, selling a Coke and a popcorn. Um, you mentioned that you had reached out to Ryan Cohen of GameStop, and I'm wondering how far those talks have gone and, and what a partnership with GameStop from your perspective um, would look like. Well, I didn't say I'd reached out to Ryan Cohen. 
I said that AMC had reached out to GameStop. We, we are in discussions with our marketing organizations and in touch with their marketing organization. There are lots of ideas that have been floated and uh, we'll see what, what happens. The, uh, that earnings call that you talked about where we mentioned that we had not been in, part, in contact with GameStop yet, but we're going to get in contact with GameStop it was only a month ago. Uh, partnerships between two big companies take a little longer than four weeks to solidify, especially if they're going to mean anything. So it's premature to answer the question, but I'll tell you what, I'll come on CNBC and uh, tell you when the time comes when we know more. Or you'll go on YouTube, <laughs> because that is that seems the way you, you communicate with retail investors. When did you realize that you had to go on YouTube to reach your new shareholder base? Uh, very lucky. I have 31-year-old twin sons, one of whom spends about eight hours a day on the internet. Uh, every single day, he sends me the most interesting things that he finds on the internet about AMC. It was my son who sent me a, a, a copy of a tweet where Trey's Trades wanted me to come on and do an interview on YouTube. All of a sudden, right after he let me know it existed, I was deluged. Again, there's that word deluged, but that's how I feel some days because I get so much feedback coming in that retail investors really want to see me on Trace Trades on YouTube. And I did it. Uh, and we went for an hour. Try getting an hour uh, on CNBC. It's not easy. We went for an hour and it was watched 350,000 times, I think. Um, so I've done it twice since. And each time, oh, and, and don't ever do this at your network. But, you know, at YouTube, they have a thumbs up and a thumbs down thing right under the video. I forget exactly what it is today, but I remember checking immediately after the first uh, interview on YouTube and checking for several days thereafter. And it was running 98 to 2 positive. I haven't done anything in my life that's been rated 98 to 2 positive. Even my mother wouldn't have given me 98 to 2 positive. So we knew that, look, this is where our retail investors are. They are enthusiastic about our company. We're serious that we need to talk to our investors. And if they're watching CNBC, which they do, we'll be on CNBC. If they're watching Trace Trades and other programs on YouTube, that's where we'll, we'll be too. Uh, and, you know, I talk about this whole issue of communicating with the investors. But if you think about it, look how much time company management teams devote to communicating with the institutional investment community who forever and ever have been the owners of most companies on public stock exchanges. Uh, quarterly earnings calls, investor conferences, non-deal roadshows, individual phone calls, meetings with large shareholders. This went on all the time. Uh, most CEOs I talk to tell me they devote 10 to 20% of their time just dealing with the owners of their company. Well, and that's what we did at AMC, and I, that's what I've done at the other public companies that I've run over the course of the past 30 years. You know, Vail Resorts and Norwegian Cruise Line and Starwood Hotels. Well, guess what? We've got a different investor base now. And so just like management teams have always talked to their shoulders, shareholders in the past, AMC, and specifically the CEO and also my CFO of, 
of AMC. We need to be talking to our owners. We need to be talking with our owners. In this case, at AMC, that's retail individual investors. And there are new ways to talk to them. Twitter, YouTube, all sorts of things. And what I find so fascinating is there's been a, a lot written in the press since March or April about how novel it is that AMC has reached out to these individual investors. It's not so surprising, is it? We're just talking to and with the people who own our company. That's what company managements have done forever. What's novel is that retail investors own the vast majority of our shares. That's what's changed. And so uh, we've had to change how we talk to our owners. We've had to use different media to talk to our owners and different strategies. You know, on our last earnings call in early August of 2021, we all, on all our earnings calls, I've been doing earnings calls since 1993. 1993, it's a long time ago. We always would take questions from institutional investors through securities analysts. Well, on the call we just did in August of 2021, we took a dozen calls from retail individual investors and one call from a securities analyst. Why? Because it's the retail investor who owns our company. Those are the people whose questions we should be answering. At what point, Adam, did you decide that you should lean into being a meme stock? They should take advantage of this diehard retail shareholder base and, and help your company. Um, almost instantly. We realized in April of 2021 that retail investors had bought 80% of the shares of our company. I was flabbergasted. I'd never heard of a company on the New York Stock Exchange that was owned 80% by retail investors. And as I've said to you in other parts of this interview, if it's retail investors who own our company, we, then we need to be talking to those retail investors because they own the company. You know, I would put out public comments that they are our bosses and uh, we work for them, and that I, as the CEO of this company, work for them. That wasn't pandering to them. That's what I was trained to think in business school 40 years ago. Management teams work for the owners of their companies. I spent 25 years in private equity where uh, a big difference between a company that was a private equity portfolio company and other public companies is that often those private equity firms had board seats so that when you as CEO went into the boardroom, you were actually looking in the eyes of the owners of your business and talking to them directly. And the connection between uh, management and ownership was much tighter. And I think that the returns that companies controlled by private equity produced were often superior, specifically because they were focused on what the owners of the business were saying. So when I realized in April of 2021 that retail investors controlled AMC, I instantly knew that we should be talking and communicating with them. So in April, I started tweeting. In May, on our earnings call, we directed some comments very, very pointedly to our retail investor base. And, and I'm proud of what we said, because what we said is they own AMC and they deserve respect for owning AMC. And I've seen so many tweets where the so-called smart money, the Wall Street financial elites, would look down on these individual investors. Our stocks had a 
more than a 2,000% increase in 2021. Who's the dumb money? Uh, who's the smart money? And look, there's no guarantee it'll stay there. There's only one thing I know in life with absolute uncertainty. Tomorrow, our share prices are going to be higher than it is today, what it is today, or lower than what it is today. And no one knows for sure. This phenomenon that's occurred where retail investors have poured into embracing certain companies that they like has been called the democratization of Wall Street. And I think it has its roots all the way back in the financial crash of 2008. I think Main Street was outraged at Wall Street because there was an economic collapse, as we all know, in Wall Street. And it was the U.S. taxpayer who bailed out the whole financial system. And uh, thank goodness that both the Bush administration and the Obama administration did, or we might have seen a global depression in 2008. But that didn't make the average American taxpayer happy about it. And as Wall Street elites have been thumbing their noses at Main Street, I think a lot of these people wanted the legitimacy that they deserved. And they are a force to be reckoned with, not only for AMC, but for all the financial markets. Now, we did take that one step further. In addition to actively communicating with our investors, we watched as our share price exploded up. Uh, it was trading at $3 a share in January, $2 a share in January. By early May, it was $10 a share. That was like triple what we were trading at in mid-January. So we went out and we raised money. We sold shares in the open market and we brought in $425 million. It was like, that was much needed cash for us. Uh, and we did it at an average price of, of just under $10 a share in the first two weeks of May. By the end of May, we were trading at $20 a share and $30 a share. And in early June, we were trading at $50 a share. And we sold a lot more stock in the open market. And we raised a lot of cash. And it turns out in May and June, we raised $1,250,000,000 through the sale of equity. And that billion and a quarter was incredibly valuable to our company to uh, help make us um, confident that we'll not only survive this pandemic, but thrive through this pandemic. So yes, we've embraced our investors. We're very grateful to them for their love and affection of our company. And I'll say that today, whether our share price goes up tomorrow, it stays the same or it goes down. Um, you mentioned the roots of this whole movement, of, of this love for AMC. Um, and AMC has really become something much more than just a stock for a lot of these shareholders. It's come to symbolize something. It comes, it's come to symbolize uh, an effort to democratize Wall Street at large, to make the system more fair. It's brought to light things like dark pools, um, price manipulation, payment for order flow. Do these things matter to you? Sure they do. Look, you know, this has been... Uh, an almost impossible situation to navigate through from March 16 of 2020 to today. First, we had to deal with the fact that our revenues went from $450 million a month to $450,000 a month in a week's time. In a week, we went from $450 million to $450,000 of revenue. Companies weren't designed to lose 99% of their revenue. They just weren't. But we got our way through that, and then this whole uh, meme stock phenomenon is 
totally uncharted waters. I don't think any CEO has lived through what I've lived through in the past six months, other than the other few CEOs who are living, it, living through it at the same time. We are doing everything we know how at AMC to do this right and do this proper, but I'm all for regulation. And uh, I hope that in this democratization of Wall Street, that the SEC looks hard at how markets function and puts in policies, procedures, regulations, laws that govern how markets work. I'm a big believer in the capitalist system. A, a Harvard Business School graduate, with distinction, I might add. And I've always believed in markets, and I've always believed in capitalism, and I've always believed that our system is the best way to grow wealth, not grow wealth for an individual, but grow wealth for the entire population on the planet. But capitalism only works when it's fair and when it's regulated and when the rules of the game are set out so nobody cheats. And that's the job of the SEC. And I know that they're on the case, not our case or, or this particular situation, but the SEC was established because of the the, the great market crash in 1929. The SEC's job was to make sure that, you know, there are free and fair, open markets. And I think over the span of uh, 100 years, the SEC's done a great job. And I want them to do a great job going forward for the next 100 years because the best thing that can happen to all of us is that markets operate fairly so that capital that so that stock markets exist well that people believe in them so that companies can raise capital to to grow and to thrive i think a lot of our shareholders feel the same way do you think that there's price manipulation of amc stock because of things like dark pools and naked shorts synthetic shorts etc i've never made a public comment on this subject heretofore and i will honor that tradition and not make a public comment today uh, suffice it to say, uh, I want uh, free, fair, and open markets, well-regulated markets. I want companies to stay on the right side of the line and, and uh, do what's good and just and play by the rules. It's up to the SEC to decide what's right and what's proper, and uh, I'm happy to live under their judgment. Um, fair enough. want to talk a little bit more about your relationship with the retail investors since they are so important to you. Um, you said before they call you King. They also call you Silverback. What are some of your favorite nicknames? What are your favorite memes that you've come across? Well, let me start by answering your question this way. Think of this all as an orchestra playing a great piece of music. Adam Aaron is not the conductor of that symphony. I might be uh, on the timpani drum, but I'm not the conductor. And I've described this whole meme stock phenomenon as riding a tiger by the tail. We're not the tiger. I'm not the tiger. I'm on the tail and I'm holding on for dear life. And so I, I don't want anyone to think that we're somehow orchestrating all of this, that we've got it all. Oh, it's some, some grand scheme in the back of our heads. No, this is all just an outpouring 
of enthusiasm and affection for our company from the people who own our company. Having said that, you know, I, got a, I have a sense of humor. You got to laugh at some of this stuff, right? And as I said, I read a thousand messages a day. Some of them are flattering. Some of them are uproariously funny. And usually the ones that are uproariously funny are the ones where my face has been put into some other place or uh, somehow I'm Frank Sinatra's voice is coming out of my mouth singing my way. I've seen three or four really good songs uh, that supposedly I'm singing and it's my face that's moving, but I promise you I don't have that kind of a voice. There are other memes that have come forward. Somebody took my face and somehow ingrained it into the face of a gorilla. If you look at the gorilla from afar, it looks like a gorilla as you zoom in on the face. It's me. There's a well-known one where my uh, face was put in place of Marlon Brando in the Godfather poster and was relabeled the Ape Father. Uh, there's another one where my face was superimposed where Sigourney Weaver's face was on the poster for Gorillas in the Mist, which was the story, the biography of Diane Fossey, the great conservationist who helped save the great apes and endangered species in uh, the Rwanda and, and, and the Congo. They're all, they're all pretty funny. I, I'll tell you this though, look, it's very flattering and in many cases it's amusing, but I learned a long time ago, never read your own press clippings and don't believe all the good things that are said about you and don't ever let it go to your head. You know, let's be clear, they're, going back to my original metaphor, they, the retail investors, are the conductors of this orchestra. I'm just playing an instrument playing my role and hoping for a good outcome for all of us. But all this shows that you've really resonated somehow with the retail shareholder base. Um, and so I want to ask you about what happened in the second interview that you did with Trey Collins when the camera tilted down and showed that you were revealing no pants. Was there a hidden message behind that? Was that planned? So there is this famous YouTube interview. It was like an hour long. For the record, I was wearing a tie and a dress shirt and the camera was positioned above my waist and I looked quite the professional CEO and the camera fell over in the middle of the interview and it, you might say it exposed the shorts because I was wearing shorts uh, below the waist because it wasn't on camera and people saw that and uh, instantly people were wondering if it was an accident or planned People were wondering if there was a hidden message that my shorts were exposed. And, you know, there was an old commercial about hair coloring back in the 1970s, only her hairdresser knows for sure. I'm never going to tell you whether it was planned or not. Oh, come on. Are you, are you wearing pants now, Adam? I, can you tilt the camera down, please? Uh, I indeed am wearing a full, a full suit today. Okay, so no exposing the shorts, so to speak, today at least. Not today. At what point is it too much to listen to them? Back in June, you asked the shareholders to authorize the issuance of 25 million new shares. You took that off the table before it came to a vote because of the backlash that it got on Twitter. Not many CEOs would respond to that sort of backlash by pulling 
what they think needs to be done for the good of the company. Why did you do that? So uh, you'll recall I told you that I ran an NBA team for a couple of seasons. And there was this wonderful line. And I used to listen to the fans all the time. And I had a, a real Eminence Grease who was a general manager of the team. He was 75 or something. And he'd been around forever and ever. He said, you know, Adam, be careful. If you listen to the fans too much, pretty soon you'll be sitting up in the seats with the fans. You know, I am aware that my job is to lead. And my job is to convince our shower base of the right things that need to be done for our company. And often I will take their advice. Uh, and sometimes I won't take their advice. But in the case in particular of issuing 25 million more shares that was on the ballot at our July 2021 annual shareholder meeting, you have to remember that our company sold a lot of stock between September of 2020 and June of 2021. We had 100 million shares outstanding in January 2020. By June of 2021, we had 513 million shares outstanding. We'd already issued shares that had more than quintupled our, our shareholder base. And yes, personally, I made it very clear. I thought the best thing that our company could do was issue another 25 million shares. It would only be 2% of the shareholding count at the moment. And we could have raised easily, easily, another billion or $2 billion of cash, which would have given us that much bigger of a war chest to go out and grow this company and do interesting things with it. But, you know, I wouldn't call it a backlash per se on Twitter because I saw so many tweets in favor of it and so many tweets opposed to it. It's not like it was there were people who were universally opposed to it, but it was clear that there was a great division of opinion. And as someone who's led the selling of over 400 million new shares in a year, I, I, now that I'm in the movie business, I sort of think of everything in sort of movie titles and movie quotes. There's a famous movie uh, uh, called A Bridge Too Far about a World War II battle. Uh, and it just seemed to me that if our shareholder base was that split, not everybody in favor, not everybody opposed, but really split. It was just pushing the envelope too far to sell more shares that soon. So we took it off. We took that whole issue off the table for calendar year 2021. We not only didn't vote on it at the July meeting, but I said we wouldn't make that proposal again in calendar year 2021. We might revisit that idea in 2022 or 2023. We'll see. No decisions made yet. But Look, it's, I think when you lead a public company, especially with retail investors as, who are the core of the ownership, having an understanding of what they're willing to support and having an understanding of what causes them angst, it's important to, to have your fingers on the pulse. And that's why I've been reading all these inbound messages I get, whether it's emails or, or, or tweets. It's important for me to know what they're thinking. And, you know, sometimes they're going to have to do what I think is best, regardless. But other times, I should listen very carefully to what they have to say. In this instance, I, you know, discretion is the better part of valor. I thought wisdom was to wait for a time when our shareholder base was more enthusiastic about the idea where you know you're never going to you know you're never going to get to 100 zero, 
But if you can get to 70-30 or 65-35, right. that's a lot better than chasing something that's more like 50-50. Are you actively looking at ways to raise capital right now? Yes. Can you elaborate? No. You can't issue more shares. Uh, we, we cannot and will not issue more shares in calendar year 2021. Uh, we've said that categorically. And we, by the way, we essentially have run out of common stock. Other than the five and a half million shares that are sitting ungranted in the management incentive plans, you know, the annual stock grants that 150 of our executives receive every year, I think we only have 46,000 common shares left that we could sell uh, legally without a shareholder vote. There are all sorts of other ideas that various people are floating to us. Reverse stock split and then issuing new shares, is that on the table? That's not on the table. Uh, and my understanding of the law is that if we did a reverse stock split, that would also contract the number of shares we're allowed to issue. So it's not like if you did a reverse stock split, all of a sudden you'd have hundreds of millions of shares you could sell. But yeah. given where our stock is trading at the moment, I don't think a reverse stock split would make sense under any circumstances. Uh, we're not trading at $2,000 a share. We're, we're, you know, we're trading uh, in the mid 40s when at the time of this interview. My last question to you, Adam, is, is how does this movie end in your view? There are a lot of retail investors who have made a fortune off of AMC stock. There are also a lot of investors who keep plowing more money in. When, when I tweeted that I was talking to you today, what, what do you guys want to know out there on Twitter? One person said, I want you to tell Adam Aaron that 10% of every paycheck goes to AMC till the mother of all short squeezes. Are you worried about, uh, you know, not the fairy tale ending, but, but the opposite? Retail investors whose dreams don't really work out. Is there gonna be a mother of all short squeezes? The only thing we all know about the future is that we're gonna to have to live to see that day come when the future actually arrives. And only then will we know the end of the story. No one has a crystal ball. No one can say for certain what will happen a day from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. That's true about everything in life. Obviously, my hope would be for a fairy tale ending. I'm an AMC shoulder, big one. Whether it happens or not, the only way we'll know is to live through it and get to that day, and then we'll know. Having said that, I value every single dollar that every investor puts in AMC. And it's my job to make sure that this company grows into the valuation that it has in the financial markets. Uh, my management team and I are literally at it 24-7. We live, breathe, and die AMC. And we will um, take those bold actions that uh, we can think of to grow the company, to let it prosper, to have it thrive, uh, and to see our share price rise. And every management team of every company in the universe probably will say the same thing. Many of them do it, not all, but most do it, the most good-hearted people. But there's no certainty in life, and we'll only know as we get there, but we sure are going to try. 
So Adam, can you tell me about what it was like to go through these past 18 months? I mean, emotionally, what was it like for you? I'd have to say that it's been a roller coaster. You know, I feel like I've been training for this day my entire life. AMC is the fifth company that I've run since 1993. And I've taken on enormous turnaround challenges before and succeeded. And a friend of mine, who's the CEO of another company, called me right in the, the darkest and bleakest, you know, March and April of 2020 when the whole country was on lockdown. And he said, Adam, are we up for this? We were, we were born three weeks apart and I was 65 years of age in April of 2020. He said, are we up for this? You're 65, I'm 65. This is gonna be two years of hell, three years of hell, four years of hell. It's gonna be an incredible slog to get through this. And I remember saying to him, not only are we up for it, what we do over the next two, three years, it's gonna be the most important things we've ever done in our entire professional careers. He'd had a very successful career up to that point. I'd had a successful career up to that point. And yet I remember saying to him, everything that we've done doesn't matter. It was all preparation for this day. We're, we've been somehow put in the, the seat to guide our companies through this horrible storm. And if we do, that's the legacy we're going to leave behind. And so, sure, there have been darker days and happier days. Uh, and there have been some pretty stressful days when things got dicey. But, you know, this is what we were made for. And CEOs get paid a lot. Nobody necessarily understands how tough the job is. And sometimes, I don't expect any sympathy, by the way, but it takes all you got. Every bit of brain power, every bit of experience that you've developed over decades of a professional career, every bit of energy you can devote, and even then, you're not guaranteed a success. All you can guarantee is that you will throw everything you have at it. And so, sure, it's been a wild ride, sometimes scary, sometimes hilarious, especially with some of the things I'm seeing come my way, but always important. I felt I wasn't just doing a job, that I, I, I really was given a mission by these retail investors. And it was, okay, buddy, you're in charge of this 101-year-old American institution, maybe where I had my first kiss on a date when I was, you know, 16 years old. Save it. Don't let it disappear. Don't let this COVID virus or Wall Street take it down. Don't let it happen. Don't let it be on your watch. And that's something I've taken to heart uh, every single day of the last year and a half. And we probably have a year and a half to go before we can look ahead and know that the coronavirus is just an ancient, unpleasant memory. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I've only had the chance to speak about you. <laughs> and so it's been fun speaking to you. <laughs> First of all, thank you, Melissa. And given that I've never gotten more than four or five minutes on CNBC, this like counts as like 20 or 30 interviews. So there you go. <laughs> okay. To learn more about the Ape Movement and what the movement could mean for Wall Street's future, check out our documentary, How the AMC Apes Cracked Wall Street, on YouTube, CNBC.com, and Peacock. For CNBC, I'm Melissa Lee. This podcast was produced by Janice Pettit, Jesse Joseph, edited by Dane Evans, 
and recorded by Andrew Evers, Oscar Molina, and David Furter. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.